Welcome to the Bard and Bible, a conversational devotional about scripture, life, and ministry from the perspective of a tabletop missionary still trying to figure out what those words actually mean when you string them together. There's a seat by the fire over there, and it looks like things are just about to get started. Tonight's tale, Daddy's Little Snowflake. Come in, my friends, come in. My goodness, you look awful. I know the roads are bad this year, but you look positively dreadful. Have no fear, however, as I am indeed Mike Perna, resident dwarf bard, and this is, in fact, the Bard and Bible. Your reservation was sent ahead of you, and all is in order. Now, while I finish preparing your rooms for the night, do sit by the fire. Our stable boy is tending to your horses, so just relax. Might I get you a mug of something, or maybe something warm to eat? Just relax. We're here to help. I've got a bunch of stories to share with you. Like, normally I try to frame these around one story or two stories, or maybe straight up go directly to the Bible passage that I want to talk to. But this one, there's a handful of different things that I want to share with you. And because I can't entirely get away from my preaching training, I have one silly story, one sentimental story, and one serious one leading into kind of looking at at not one particular passage of scripture, but more like a tenor of the New Testament. So let's start. The first story is about my dog, Bates. It's funny because he's literally sleeping behind me. Bates is a lab mix, which is our nice way of saying he's part black lab, part pit bull terrier. Now, those words tend to be of a scary variety. Some people hear that, that that's a, that's what he is. There's a reason why we say when people ask, what is he? We call him a lab mix. It's because those words, pit bull terrier, they bring in like all sorts of, of bad connotations. In fact, Bates was a rescue. And so when we actually were going through the business of, of adopting him, we actually had to call our landlord because they refused to let us go home with him without audible recognition from the landlord that he was okay with us bringing him home. He was a six-month-old puppy. So I'm not going to say that, that Bates has always had an easy life. Like I said, he was only six months when we got him, but – he was a rescue, and he wasn't rescued from just, like, not having a great life. He was rescued from a dogfighting arena. Uh, what we discovered quickly, because they told us, and I did a little research afterwards, was that normally dogs who are, are rescued from pit bull fights, if they're a mixed breed, their sole purpose was to be what's referred to as a bait dog. And... Don't think I don't find the irony of us naming him Bates with the fact that he was a bait dog. What a bait dog is, is they are entirely there to get the fighting dogs warmed up. Their sole purpose in life is to be attacked. At six months, I have no idea what our dog saw before we met him. All I know is that he has to deal with some severe anxiety 
to the point where for a number of months, I had to go to our local pharmacy to pick up his medication, his Prozac. Yeah. I had a dog who was so high strung, so wound tight that he had to be on Prozac. Now, if you've ever met my dog, if you do know me and you've, you've seen him, you'll realize that he can be a little scary, not because he's mean or nasty or violent, but because he doesn't realize that he's 55 pounds of solid muscle. And he doesn't realize that jumping on you at full speed is a bad idea. I love my dog, but I completely understand when people who don't know him get freaked out because he has this way of smiling that he's so happy to see you. And when a dog smiles, it's a lot of pointy teeth. But I, I've never, I've had a lot of dogs in my life. I've had a bunch of dogs with a bunch of different breeds. Few of them are as friendly as Bates is. Few of them are more excited to see people at the house. But he he's, he can be intimidating, and I, I recognize that. In fact, 99% of the time, my dog, I would never hesitate to have my dog see anybody. He is the sweetest, friendliest, kindest dog. But then I remember that, that six months before we got him, he was basically probably seeing some of the harshest stuff I've ever even thought of in my life. And as such... There is a 1% that I have to be painfully aware of. There is a 1% when he sees certain dogs, like a beagle that's up the street for some reason, or, or other certain dogs, or other certain people, that he becomes very uncomfortable. He is not happy at all, and, and I have to hold him extra tight, and I have to make sure that I have him by the collar, otherwise it would go bad. Knowing about, even though I know about the 99% of the time that my dog is perfectly wonderful and a, a, a saintly dog, even despite the fact that he's incredibly, you know, energetic and gets into a lot of trouble, there's that 1%. And so depending on where I find myself in the 99% or the 1%, you can literally see my countenance change in the way I talk to my dog. You can see that. I might get frustrated when he's being playful and jumping and trying to steal food because he loves to do that. But at that 1%, I get real serious. And it it's it's a distinct change because I know how to talk to my dog. The next story is about, about two brothers. And when I first met them, I met them one at a time. So I didn't even know they were brothers. I didn't know there were two of them. And so the one brother shows up to youth group. And I'm not always a guy who's like, like, all right, I, I just met this kid. I need to know where he stands with Jesus. It's not, it's not the way I do things. I usually, you know, I try, I mean, there's a reason why the no preaching rule happens at, at inroads. I, I want that moment where I share Christ with people to be one that shows up naturally as a part of our conversation and getting to know each other. I'm not, I'm not one for the hard sell. But for some reason, it was like God himself, the Holy Spirit that was like coming down upon me and said, no, seriously, dude, you need to tell this boy about Jesus like now. And I did. And this kid who just showed up at a youth group Christmas party decided that he desperately wanted to trust Christ. There was no reason he shouldn't. And he really, he wanted to. I, it was an amazing moment. It was one of the very cool times. Like I've, I've collected a number of stories of people who I've led to the Lord, but this is one of the cool ones. Cause it's like, 
I don't normally do this. It shows that it's 100% God. It always is 100% God, but it was, there's literally nothing in me that could even try to claim this. It literally was completely out of left field for me and it got me excited. Cause I was, when this happened, I was still very fresh in ministry. I had not even gotten out of college yet. So the fact that this had even happened was still like, like a jolt to me. Like it was exciting. Literally the next week, I meet his brother, but I don't think it's his brother. Cause one thing I failed to mention to you guys is these guys are identical twins. Now, as years went by, they, you know, like most twins will do at some point or another, they, their styles went drastically different. But at this point in their life, my goodness, you, you I swear to you, I, I don't even know how their parents could tell them apart. Now, none of the other youth group kids got me in on the gag. So when I walked up to this one guy and started talking to him like he was his brother, Everyone just started giggling and laughing and pointing at me. And I'm like, I, I'm like, what's the deal? And then they said, this is his brother. Now, I had lots of conversations with him about God, about life, about this, about that. Nothing. There was no like great moment. There was no big thing like, oh my goodness, I need to trust God. I need to have my life, you know, changed immediately. None of that happened with this, like, this other brother. But I kept saying, I kept talking to him about God, kept talking about life, kept talking to him about some of the stuff that he was going through because he, he had some stuff like we all do. But it was, there would, there never was that moment. And then one night we were just talking about, I can't even remember what the conversation was. But then he goes, he goes, yeah, no, it's, it really is amazing what God can do and all this stuff. And I'm like, wait, what? And we just had this moment where he's like, yeah, no, I totally believe in God. I totally believe all the stuff you've been telling me. I just, I just didn't, I haven't communicated that, but I, I just, I, yeah, I totally buy into this. These are two identical brothers. So identical that, I mean, yeah, we talk about identical twins. No, these were so identical that I literally couldn't tell them apart until years later. But one, I sat him down, said, this is what Jesus did for you. Are you ready to trust him? He goes, absolutely. The other one took like a year, year and a half of me just talking with him. And, and there was no great, wonderful moment. It was just like, oh, yeah, no, I totally get that. Now, the last story that you're going to hear from me before we start talking about the gospel and and what Jesus did and how he, he, he interacted with people, this is the serious story. And I've kind of touched around the edges of this story in previous episodes but this one, this one hits home to me and it still hits home to me because it's still something that is so weird to realize because it's so distinctly different from my own memories. Uh, I, it, it was probably, I, I can't remember the exact context of it, but it was, I vaguely remember it being on a time when I was, I was at odds with my dad because I thought faith looked like this and he thought it looked like that. And I was too immature, both in the faith and as a person to realize that we can be different and still love Jesus. And I was just going at it because I was trying to be my own person and establish myself from my dad. And at one point he just, he, for some reason he couldn't, he couldn't take it. He needed me to know this. Now I'm, I was, like 17 or 18 years old when he said this, but so this had been a complete myth. Like I knew nothing about this before then. And he told me something. 
He said, I want to tell you a little bit about what it was like when I was a kid and how your, your pop, like my grandfather, how your pop used to treat me. He said, it's pretty much tradition in Italian households, at least from the part of Italy that my grandfather came from, that the oldest son in the family gets nothing and is in fact downright abused. My dad told me how my grandfather beat the ever-loving snot out of him repeatedly and brutally. He told me that he got no love, no affection, no support from my grandfather. The idea being that, God forbid, anything were to happen to him, it would be my dad's responsibility to be the man of the house. So it it was important for my grandfather to make sure that he could be that man. He could be tough. He could be strong. And the way he did that was by basically making life a living hell for him. Like I said, I was like 17 or 18 when I got told this, when when this was brought to light. So I was trying to have that image of my grandfather gel with me. How does this man, who was tough, who was gruff, who was silent, but still loved me, the guy who would sit there on Saturday afternoons and watch Doctor Who reruns with me, how that guy, the guy who would, who joked with me because, because he had false teeth and, and how he would drop them on the table and, and make funny faces at me. Like that guy, I thought of how he, of what he did to my dad and, and how that affected my dad. And I remember my dad looking at me and he said, I promised myself that if I were to ever have a son, I would never, ever do that to him. I would never put him through what I went through. And he, I, the short version is he made, he made very good on that. My dad never laid a hand on me. And it's funny because I still remember a conversation that I had in seminary where somebody was talking, we, we were all sharing stories of our childhoods and like everybody would talk to me how he go, yep, I learned how to, you know, especially because I, <laughs> I was, you know, in the middle of the Bible belt in school. And so there was a lot of people who were like, yep, my, my folks, you know, would, would hit me with a spoon or my, my, my dad, you know, hit me with a belt. And all of them would tell me stories about how I learned respect and I learned how to act right. And I said, my dad never touched me. He never needed to. And they were shocked because they, uh, they were just under this understanding that that's how you do it. That's how you get people to act right is you, you, you use that kind of punishment. And I said, all my father ever had to do with me was look at me and say, I'm so disappointed in you. And even now, just, just saying those words out loud, thinking about dad saying that to me, I'm still to this day, a man of 37 years old sitting here with tears in my eyes because that concept of my father who loved me so well saying he was disappointed in me it would still break me even to think about it even though i know that my dad is proud of me even though i know all that stuff just to think about that concept wrecks me and there is the rub of this story this is why this is the last story of all these these stories that i've given to you tonight about uh Interacting with people and knowing how to interact with them, knowing who they are, knowing their personality, knowing exactly what they need to hear and stepping into it, even if it's different or you, you have to, or it's nuanced or all that. 
The reason I bring this up is because if my dad treated me the way his dad treated him, I'd have never made it out of my teenage years. I'd have never made it. I, I might not even have made it to my teenage years. As you know, a lot of the, those of you who interact with me in this podcast interact with me hearing me now, hearing me as I am now, as, as God has done so much in my life now. Y'all never met me when I was a kid. But there are some of you out there who listen, who I've known forever, who are good friends of mine. And you guys know, they, those people have seen me grow up, seen me from who I was to who I became and to who I am now and, and how that's, that's ever changing really. And me as a kid, I, if you'd have talked to me when I was like, like, 10 and, and said, by the way, you, you're going to love going into large groups of people. You are going to love making a, a public spectacle, spectacle of yourself and, and being a, a fool for God and being a fool just to make people laugh. That kid wouldn't have known what you were talking about because that kid started weeping when he met new people. He was terrified. He was literally scared of everyone. If you weren't family, you were potential foe and potential, potential enemy. And, and he was scared of life. That kid constantly thought that the world was out to get him and you couldn't prove it to him otherwise. That kid thought a bad grade literally was the end of the world. That kid thought that everyone was looking for just one excuse to hate him. That kid is the same kind of kid that folks call Snowflake now. That kid is the same kind of kid that is is basically told that being emotional and being weak and being fragile is something to be mocked. That kid, if he grew up now, would be a completely different person than I am. And if that kid got the back of his dad's hand that kid would have been broken beyond all all concepts of the word so what does any of this have to do with the bible or jesus or or life in general i i find myself looking through a lot of people like it, there was no one story that got this one there was no no one story it, i'm literally looking at the entirety of the gospel narrative because I noticed something and you've probably noticed it too, but I'm, I'm going to codify what you've probably seen. Jesus talked to people how they needed to be talked to. There was no one narrative. He spoke to them as that person needed to a lot of people. There was kindness and gentleness. There was the woman at the well, there was, there was Zacchaeus who basically Christ said, Hey, uh, I'll come over for dinner. There were all these times that people would, would meet Jesus and he would speak to them with kindness. Every time he did healings, it was always out of kindness and gentleness and a desire for them to know who God is. He would speak to them like, like, like a father would. In that soft tone, in that tone that said, I'm here for you, I see you, I acknowledge who you are, and I need you to know 
who God is, what I am doing. And I want you to leave here and sin no more. Because that was always still part of the narrative. He did always say, go now and sin no more. But it was in the context of a gentle hand. But there was another way that Christ handled things with the religious leaders. The religious leaders didn't get go and sin no more, did not get the, the gentle hand. They got a smack on the bottom. They got, got whitewashed sepulchers and brood of vipers. Jesus with them was brutal and blunt. And I mean, literally we're talking about a case where he, he literally made a whip and started beating people and flipping tables. Like the, there was a time when Jesus was like, nah, dude, they don't need, they don't need me to be kind here. They don't need that word. They need this. And it was exactly what was necessary. It was exactly speaking to what they were and who they were. The religious leaders, he walked up to them and said, y'all should know better than this. That's That'll be my translation of this. Y'all should know better than this. We'll, we'll put that up on all sorts of different stuff. Because that every time I, I see these these absolutely brutal things, like, what do you mean? I can't do this because it's the Sabbath. What do you think the Sabbath is even about? Like, I can, I can just see just the, 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 the angst and the, the back of the teeth kind of like, in his voice as he's talking to these people and saying, y'all need to get right because you should know better than this. Jesus spoke exactly how he needed to. To speak to the heart of what was in front of him. And I can even talk about a middle one with, you know, the story of the rich ruler who said, said, Oh, Jesus, I, I want to follow you. What do I need to do? And he goes, Okay. You want to follow me? That's awesome. Sell off everything. Which that one is neither brutal and blunt and painful, nor is it gentle and loving and kind. It is right in the middle. He just blatantly, he just, very calmly says, okay, this is what you need to do. Because by the way, I already know that this is painful for you. I already know that you're worshiping your money. I'm telling you this because that's what I need you to do. What are you going to do about it? In all of these cases, Jesus always spoke to who the person was. He spoke to them and in a manner that would speak to them. He doesn't look at the, the broke down, the brokenhearted, the absolutely destroyed and said, y'all need to get right. Nor did he look at those who were, had a, a, an overinflated sense of self and self-worth and self-importance and self-holiness and say, Oh, I, I want you to know that God loves you. Go and sin no more. He spoke to them exactly how they needed to be spoken to. So what does that, what does any of this mean? What is the takeaway from all this as I, as I wrap up this story? Here's the thing. Every one of these people are unique. They are different and in different places. And as such, they need to hear the message that you are trying to put forth in their own unique way. 
You can't just have the blanket statement that says, if I do this, I, I if I give them three points, a poem and a prayer, they're going to meet Jesus because it doesn't work that way. I've had people who, who talk to me about the way I share the gospel, the way I do a very low key, like I, I, I'm talking to you about what God does in my life. I will answer every question you have. I want you to know that this God that I follow is real, but I'm not going to give you the hard sell. I know some people who look at me and say, that's wrong. You need to give them the hard sell. You need to get them Jesus now because you might not ever have another opportunity. And you know what? I'm going to say both of us are right. Both of us are 100% right because both of us are coming from this place where we are sharing the gospel to people who need it. But I'll tell you what, man, when I was, you know, 16 before I came to Christ, if you'd have given me the hard sell, like you need Jesus right now, it'd be like, I grew up in church. I know who Jesus is. You need to back off because yeah, I'd been in church and I'd heard all those things. So I thought that was legit. I was, ex- I did all the right stuff. I did all the right ceremonies. So I was legit back off. So you can't, you can't go to me with that. But at the same point, I had that, that one guy who, by the way, I'm not going to give you all the backstory, but that guy, I just had a, a conversation with him. Maybe it was maybe a month ago. And he was telling me how he was thanking me for that night, how he still loves Jesus, how his, how he, he speaks to about God with his kids. And that's awesome. And that all come from the one night when, when God said, no, dude, tell him about me tonight. So both these things are 100% legit. If they're coming from God, they are speaking to the person as is needed to reach them. I've ended these episodes now with the same phrase over and over and over again. You are a dwarf bard. Don't let anyone call you suboptimal. I, I've done that for a reason, other than the fact that I really like it and it's pretty marketable. The reason is because that still resonates with me, a self-confessed snowflake. I like the fact that there's something out there that reminds me that it doesn't matter if somebody thinks you're not good enough. You are still of value. You are still loved and you are still wanted. Because I desperately needed to hear that. To be fair, there are plenty of other times in my life when I've had to look at somebody or had somebody look at me and give me the hard, solid truth. I had a friend of mine who I was in the middle of a depression in seminary. He said, dude, you need to get right. He said, you need to get out of this, this dorm room. You need to, to enjoy life because you are wasting it. And I needed that too. So I, I can't end this episode crafting a special, unique thing that's literally going to speak to you. All I can do is trust in, in the God that informs me on what to say. All I can do is, is let you know that there is somebody who cares and I, I will never use snowflake as a pejorative. Likewise, I will never look at somebody who is, you know, certifiably hard and, and tough and strong and whatever and look at them as some kind of goon. We're all in very different places. We are all capable of very different things. And that's honestly pretty beautiful. 
that's pretty fantastic, actually, because every one of us coming with all of our different stuff, coming with all the things that we do well and all the ways that we hurt, whether it's out front and on our sleeve or buried deep down in, every one of us is known by God. Every one of us has a way that God can speak to us. And maybe you're listening to this right now and Barden Bible is what speaks to you. Maybe it's not, but it's okay because there's plenty of other ways that God can speak to you. I'm just one of them. And I think that it's time that we open up the possibilities that maybe even if, if things look confusing and weird and not how we expect life to be, that maybe God sees them the way God sees us and maybe we should speak to them in the way that God does. I look forward to talking to you guys again next time at the Barden Bible. <laughs>